Hello, hello, my dear friends and participants in this dialogue on health, healing, health maintenance, consciousness, morality, spirituality, and search for meaning. I'm Peter Resnick, and welcome to the Dr. Peter Resnick's Toolbox. I'm reminding you that today is the third Tuesday of the month, and the next Tuesday will be the last Tuesday of the month. And that means that next uh, Tuesday, next show, will be devoted to talking about our night dreams. Thanks to Nikki for her suggestion. So please prepare your night dreams uh, for the next Tuesday. Uh, you're welcome to call, and I will gladly work with you um, on your night dream and see what where it will take you, and is it a night dream that is just affirming the changes in your life or uh, reflecting to you, you at the moment, or it's a dream that tells you that something is to be changed, and the change can happen through you engaging the dream. All that is possible, and I will gladly work with you, as I said, next week. And today we'll just have an open mic show you can call any with any question uh, about life, about health and healing. But I will start still with a particular subject. And if you want to chip in at any time, again, you can call it. I would very much appreciate it. The number to call is 888-874-4888. Again, 888-874-4888. 4888. And if you want to email me, you can email at drpeterresnik at gmail.com. D-R-P-E-T-E-R, another R-E-Z, N as Nancy, I-K, at gmail.com. Several people send me emails asking if I intended to teach any courses in the coming year. Uh, as you probably know, those of you who have been with me for a while, uh, that I started teaching a course for professionals uh, almost a year and a half ago. It was for mental health professionals only, uh, a 60-week course. We started in September and will be finished, I believe, by the end of January, beginning of February. So if I have a class, if I have enough people, uh, I decided I will indeed teach a course open to anyone. It would be a 10-week course, not like for the professionals. A 60-week, it will be a 10-week course named Using Your Mind Power for Healing and Health Maintenance. It will be done on Skype. We'll go through deep exploration of mental, emotional, and physical self, identifying one's belief systems, uh, teaching how to recognize whatever happens in the body and how to heal the symptoms, understanding uh, that at that and how the inner conflicts are expressed or embodied in the physical symptoms. As a great, great psychiatrist, Scott Peck wrote in his book, which was sold with uh, 
over 10 million copies. Um, she wrote, the symptoms and the disease are not the same. The symptom is the beginning of cure. How? Because you are able to recognize by looking at the symptom, you are able to recognize what's what the symptom is telling you about you, about your inner life. And that connection between the inner life and the outer life or the life of the body has been recognized forever. In fact, you probably heard me quote a number of times the father of Western medicine, Hippocrates, who said 24, 2500 years ago now, uh, I would rather know what sort of a man has a disease than what sort of a disease a man has. He understood that the person's inner life is as or even more important uh, for healing than uh, knowing a person's um, symptoms. Again, if you are interested in this 10-week course, I need you to email me and just let me know that you are interested and I will send you the write-up about the course and the fee because I will also charge uh, the fee for this 10-week course. And again, to to write me to me, uh, you write to drpeterresnik at gmail.com, D-R-P-T-E-R-R-E-Z-N-I-K at gmail.com. Just say I'm interested in the course and I will send you the write-up. Uh, I believe I will start it somewhere in the middle of February and it will go till uh, till the end of April, February, yeah, uh, February to March, March to, yes, it will go pretty much to the end of April. Um, well, uh, is there anybody who wants to call to talk to me again i will i will start talking now about some subject that again i was asked to talk about but please um, if you get your courage together or your questions together or interest please feel free to call i i have regular callers i know some people uh, have called many times already and as you know i i always take their calls and, and respond to their questions. Now we have a run for Florida. Wow, I am in Florida now. I don't know if I told you, but I will gladly take Ron's call. Ron, you on the air. Yeah, I had a question about if people dream at night about suicide or having uh, some sort of suicide going on in a dream. That, mm. that was my question. A good question. Well, um, if a person if, if a person dreams about, Ron, can I ask you? Uh, yeah, are you, you talking about you your experience or somebody else? Well, I was actually writing a story, and in the story, I was thinking about a person who was depressed, and they were having dreams, and I just thought. Is there anybody out there who actually dreams about suicide? Because obviously suicide in a dream is like finding a big red car in a dream. When you wake up, you don't have the red car. But uh, I just thought, you know, do, uh, you know, in your experience, has anyone said to you, gee, I had a dream last night and it was, you know, su about suicide. So that, that was my question. Okay, Ron, yes. My question to the person would be, 
um, in your dream, are you the one who is committing so attempting to commit suicide? Uh, or it's somebody else, some other person that you know, that is attempting to commit suicide. And did this well, person actually I, I hadn't thought about another person, but I had just thought that this character yes. had a dream. And uh, you see, I, I, I believe that suicide leads nowhere because you're just killing the body. The being is still yes. going to be complaining somewhere else. So uh, that's my personal opinion. Anyway, I just have this question in your experience with the people that you've known, did anybody say, gee, I had a, a dream where I committed suicide? Oh, where I committed suicide. Oh, okay. Well, not you, not you, but the person who, right, right. Uh, you know, you're, you're yeah. Yeah. talking to. Yes, I in, had. In your, I, in your office says, yes. you know, last night I had a dream. Mm -hmm. Right, Ron, I will tell you, I heard over, over 40 years, I heard many, many stories. And among them, I, I would say I, I've seen a number of people who would say I had a dream where I committed suicide. And some would say I had a dream where my friend committed suicide. So here's how I address it. If a person says I had a dream where I committed suicide, my, my question would be, what is the context within which you committed suicide? Which means, are you surrounded by other people? Were you surrounded by other people? Uh, were you planning it? Because indeed, a person it may be the case where a person has this unconscious or almost conscious sometimes wish to die and doesn't know how to, he or she wants to die. And this is kind of playing out their, their wish. It's a wish fulfillment dream. If a person, and so of course I will engage this person and explore uh, the reasons why uh, a person may uh, want to kill oneself. And um, then of course do everything I can to help the person. And do they, do they wake up after the dream and say, oh, it didn't happen, or do they just go on to another dream, or do they, do they have any outcome from this all of the above. You know, suicide? All of the above. But more often, I remember when I think one person saying, oh, in a dream I committed suicide. Um, but more often I've seen people who said, oh, I've seen my brother jump of the cliff, or my, my friend killed himself, or my friend attempted to kill himself. Uh, if you heard my talks on dreams before, I, 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 you probably know that everyone in a dream is a part of us. So therefore, I would ask a person, a person who commit, attempted to commit suicide, let's say your brother, what's the first thought that comes to you about your brother? Uh, not your relationship with him, but he has qualities. He is a human being who has qualities. What's the first quality that comes to you? And let's say he says, uh, well, he's restless and never happy. Okay. So then I would say this is a, a wonderful dream where the part of you that is restless and never happy wants to kill itself, wants to extinct that quality. So this is a, a very good dream. So it means you have those qualities in you, not by a chance that this 
brother or this friend came into your dream, you have those qualities of restlessness and not being happy. But these qualities are already ready to go, ready to be extinct. That's a, that's a good dream. But if he would say, well, this person who wants to kill himself is an honorable, very honest and, uh, and strong person. So then I would be concerned because there is a strong part of this person who is, who is the dreamer. But for some, for some reason, an honest part of the dreamer that wants to be extinct, which means there is some reason that this part feels I don't belong as part of this character. Then we need to explore. You, you understand now? So, but going back to if the person said that he, he or she saw herself or himself killing themselves, then that would um, raise my concern. Well, the, uh, the reoccurring dream that I have throughout the years, I'm going to say it happens once a year or more, yeah. is that I can't find my vehicle in New York City. I can't remember where I parked it in Manhattan. And I keep saying to myself, why didn't I write down the street it was on? Or was it towed? Or, you know, maybe it's towed. Maybe I have to call the tow office now. You know, it's just when I, when I lived in New York City, that was a problem of having vehicles towed or stolen or, or moved or I couldn't remember, you know. And, and I think it just is like you say, you go back to what is the reason that this keeps reoccurring in my life is a symbol of anxieties that I'm still not over that have, uh, you know, related to many things in life, not just a vehicle. Uh, yeah. But it's you know, not by chance that the vehicle comes, you see, you say, oh, this is a common problem in New York City. Well, there are many common problems in New York City. There is violence, homelessness, and so on. Uh, and yet, for some reason, what comes to you over and over again is that you are losing your vehicle. So my first question, of course, to you, what is a car for you? What's the first thought that comes to you about the car? What's the function? I think it's, of the car? A, possession, it's a possession, and it means also getting to go somewhere. So in other words, either leaving, leaving the city or getting back to... Uh, and, and sometimes a dream resolves where I go, you know what, this isn't real. I've had this dream before. And then I wake up. But right. it isn't necessarily uh, not a part of my life, you know, when I wake up that I, you know, I can always do things properly. You know, we all have fears and anxieties and things going on yeah. uh, and questions. So uh, the, the vehicle represents probably many things, and my anxiety in the dream represents many things. Yeah, but you already mentioned, you see, what I pay attention to is the first thing that comes to you. And you said that the, the, uh, a vehicle, a car, is something that permits you to go out of the city, permits you to be mobile. And it's not by a chance that this, this is a red flag, that the dream comes over and over again, the same dream. Like I used to have the same like almost a nightmare that I, I used to carry this little briefcase and that I lose my briefcase. So the question is, what's the thought that comes to you about the briefcase? So the same thing. And you said that what comes to you about the, the vehicle is this freedom, the ability to go, to go. So what it tells me is that you find yourself almost every year 
in the question uh, or in the in the clumsy kind of how do I uh, uh, not lose my freedom? How do I not lose my ability to be mobile? Have you found in your life that you in your waking life that you are dealing with these issues, whether it's with your work or with your relationships, that you are afraid to lose this freedom or mobility? It's a question. Uh, you know, afraid, of, afraid of a lot of things, not necessarily mobility, but being tied to possessions, to property, to owning things, to having to, you know, pay taxes on property. And, you know, it's a, it's a constant cycle. And a lot of times I feel like I'm not getting any value. I'm living in a society that overcharges for everything. And to get away from that would be you know, writing a novel, writing a book to, to, to get away somehow. But, uh, you know, I'm still in the United States and, and I'm still in a world that seems very absurd and twisted, like down the rabbit hole. So yeah, that's part of it. So, so you see losing the car gets you basically stuck in New York city, right? If you don't, if you lost the car, you cannot go. It's, like you partly, said. it's partly getting stuck and partly being in a system that will take your vehicle if you're one minute over the time zone. They tell you uh, if you if you didn't read the sign where you parked it, and the and the sign says has to be moved by seven a.m. or six a.m. or something, and you you know you overslept. There's no forgiveness, and I think that is part of the New York life that seems unforgiving for people who, you know, don't have a chauffeur-driven vehicle or don't have, you know, some other way to get out of the city uh, that doesn't require them to do what I had to do when I lived there with you know, having a vehicle. Right. So you see how clear it is that the, the, the symbolism of this, the fear of losing a vehicle or, or losing the vehicle in a dream over and over again really stands for your experience in your waking life of everything that you described is losing that freedom and, and living under the threat of, of uh, paying a high price for life and being stuck in New York City. So I would say this this dream is prompting you, hey, you better write that novel, or you better write that book, so you would not lose your car, so you would not lose your freedom. Well, the novel or the book is an escape, and maybe it shares some things that are helpful if someone reads it. But it, it it's more, when we're discussing these issues that press upon any person, you know, they, uh, constantly, if you listen to any kind of discussion about the world, you see there are a lot of problems and a lot of times they seem like they're overwhelmingly everywhere or at least like pollution or climate change or political unrest or monetary issues. I mean, the list goes on and on. And so people feel these fears and that's, and the suicide rate is up for many, you know, for many years now. And part of it is because people actually believe that their being will be better somewhere else or nowhere if they believe, you know, that they killing the body is going to kill the being. So uh, I think many times in India, they believe in reincarnation. So they say, well, can it be any worse in the next life? So, you know, they, they might suicide for that reason. 
when you say in India, um, uh, it's not only in India. Western spiritual tradition absolutely accepts the idea of reincarnation. The, in the Hebrew language, there is a word for it, term called Gilgul, which is incarnation. Um, and we we believe that it's in the Western tradition. When I say Western tradition, I'm talking about Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. They both totally um, accept the idea of reincarnation. Uh, reincarnation is not spoken um, so much in Christianity and Islam, from, from, from what I know. But yet it is a part of what is called esoteric um, tradition. In Islam, it's Sufism. In Christianity, it's esoteric Christianity. And in Judaism, it's Kabbalah. In fact, Kabbalah says, you choose the womb opening through which you come. That is, the soul chooses genetic material, that is, parents, through which it comes. Why does it need to choose this particular genetic material, not any other? Because the parents will make it the, uh, a proper environment, will create a proper environment for the little person who will be born to grow and to deal with issues that he or she needs to deal with. Which means if some soul uh, has issues with stealing and uh, needing to take someone's possession, more than likely that soul will not be born in a family where everything is available and they have a lot of money because there is no need to steal. But the goal is to come and, and learn how to steal and then hopefully within one lifetime to grow beyond it and learn that it's not the best way to live your life. So this, I, I got went on a tangent about reincarnation, but shortly reincarnation is absolutely a part of Western spiritual tradition. Anyway, but thank you for sharing with your dream. And uh, you. if you want to explore more uh, information about the dream, you can go on my website and read my article called Dreamwork. And there, I, I, particularly if you will be writing uh, about uh, a part of your novel uh, is the night dream, you may include this inner exploration of uh, the self through the night dream. And in, in the article, I write how to go back in a dream and so on. Just go on my website, drpeterresnik.com. And, and there's, a, there's a link at PRN to your website? You know, uh, yes. In the write-up after the show, uh, you always have my website. But it's very simple, Dr. Peter Resnick, D-R-P-E-T-E-R-R-E-Z-N-I-K, at, uh, no, not at, uh, dot com. So once you go on my website, I think if you now write on Google Peter Resnick with R-E-Z-N-I-K, not C-K, uh, uh, I, I come out, my, my website comes out because I'm the only Peter Resnick who has so much writing and write-ups and so on. So and then you go on the, on the menu and you go on the articles. I have a number of articles. I think the very first one is called Dreamwork. It's not a big article, but seven, eight pages. But it gives detailed explanations on how to work on your dreams, how to enter your dreams, the meaning of them, and so on. Okay. Thank you very much for calling. Thank you. And okay. And now we have 
Gwen from New York. You're on the air. Hi, Dr. Resnick. Hi, Hi Gwen. Are you good today? <laughs> Do I pronounce your name correctly? Gwen? It's Gwen. Gwen. Uh, like Gwendolyn? Gwen. Oh, okay, Gwen. Thank you. Okay, yeah. thank you for calling. You have a comment or question? Well, I do. Uh, the, you know, like I was listening to you talk about that dream, and I, and I had one dream that, that has always stuck with me. But I, I really also wanted to talk to you about a show from a couple weeks ago. Uh -huh. And I just wanted to talk to you because I, I really like you. Uh, and I, I felt that I, I know that your opinion is your opinion, and you can only form your opinion based upon your life experience. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I... I have to tell you that um, I have been uh, involved with Black Lives Matter, um, and my husband was too, and also occupied uh, Wall Street. And you know, I've been an activist for many years. And um, you know, I think first I want to tell you that my husband was 20 years older than me, and he was uh, African American. And when he was a child, he was at a camp in New Jersey, and at 12 o'clock, uh, a little boy came up to him with a big rock and smashed all of his teeth out of his mouth. And he, when Peter woke up, the kid said, I hate niggers. And, you know, this was such a devastating thing for my husband. So from the time he was 10 until he died, he had a plate in his mouth. There was a nice little Jewish doctor over there in, in New Jersey who put the plate in, but his mother never, ever complained or went to the authorities because she knew it was pointless. Later on in my husband's life, my husband's uh, brother was very, very smart. He was uh, in, in uh, going to college in um, California in 1963. Uh, he was working for IBM, and a policeman stopped him. And he was with a blonde woman that they were schoolmates. And my brother, uh, my husband's brother, was shot in the back of the head and killed by this policeman. Ronald Reagan was the pre the, uh, the uh, governor at that point, and. They never could tell the mother how the brother died. They kept it a secret until she died. They told her, they told her that he had a terrible car accident. And, of course, it was shattering. Uh, my husband had to come home from the military. He was in the Marine Corps. And, you know, when Black Lives Matter happened and I was down there, I announced to all these young kids who thought all this is new that I wanted my husband to speak on this issue and speak to them. Because I wanted them to understand that the amount of time, and my husband is a small grain in all this. He was born in 1942, so clearly, if you're an American, it goes all the way back. Now, my family is here. Um, uh, we're not not as far back as the Pilgrims, but my family uh, from the South, my father's side is from the South. Uh, we had a farm in the Civil War, and it was burned to the ground. And my mother is from Philadelphia. So the Civil War was about slavery, but a lot of people got taken down at the same time. But... But what I didn't hear in the conversation was an understanding of it's not it is not that black people are wanting anything. It's the thing called resentment and resentment when you're told over and over again, oh, that didn't really happen. And if you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you work hard. But, you know, Dr. Resnick, my husband was discriminated so many times. He had to take crap jobs after after college because he was black. And, you know. 
when he finally did get a job, I mean, he always worked, but one of the jobs was being a trash man. And, uh, you know, the men that he was working with were pretty tough guys, and they pulled the gear shift out, so the truck went backwards and, and almost killed him. The point is, is it's never easy. I remember my husband saying to me when I took him to my parents' house in Cape May, New Jersey, which is beautiful. This is so wonderful because this is something that we would never even dream of think of doing when I was a child. This is just well, not what you do. You knew where you were supposed to go. And the fear that was palatable. I mean, my husband never said I was so afraid, but he knew that when he went in, when he was in the military, if he went to a bar that was mostly, well, it was all white people, you know, he couldn't ask a, a white girl to dance or he was taking his life in his hand. So things that people take for granted, white people take for granted. And even though you are Jewish, you know, we have to remember that in, at least in Nazi Germany, maybe only in Nazi Germany, but there were reparations there. And there have not been reparations here. We've had a series of programs, sort of like the treaties with the Indians, where we've, uh, we said we were going to do one thing and we broke our word over and over again. So we never really honored any of the things we said we were going to do. And some of the other stuff, okay, it happened, but in a very haphazard fashion. So we're still at a place where, you know, you're still walking through the door and your skin is still black or brown. And, you know, it is the first thing people see. And it's a very, very difficult thing uh, for a lot of people to have to carry around because it's not you they see first. It's not my husband Peter they see. They yeah. see his skin color. It was always a topic uh, when my husband and I would go out. Always people would ask me. And many, many white people say to me, well, he's not really black. He's, he's very light. It's, and my husband, I remember how dearly he held his African-American heritage, actually his African heritage, and 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 was very proud of it and always told people and pointed out to him, to, to them, that that's what he was because it took years of struggle. So I guess when I heard the show a couple weeks ago, I felt that I didn't feel that, and, and why would you also, I mean, understand I'm from a small, you are, you're from Ukraine, I'm from a small town in Pennsylvania. My mother was a civil rights activist, but we still really never had any interaction with black people when I lived in Willow Grove, Pennsylvania. So, you know, my understanding when I got to New York uh, grew. And, uh, you know, at the beginning, it was like, well, I can't understand. I can't understand. Why don't you just do this? You just do that. It's just not that easy. And I've lived in East Harlem, which is predominantly Spanish and black, my entire time. And so because I live here, I see the inequities every day. Things that white people really take for granted. I know that I am lucky because I am not going to be treated the same way as somebody else's that's getting on the bus or going to a store or going to the library. It just is that way. It's built in. It's sort of like when you took out your card, you had to show you were Jewish and you knew right away, I'm not going to be treated the same way. They might respect me because I'm a doctor. They might think I'm okay, but that piece of me is coming through the door for a reason. So mm -hmm. I just wanted to give you clarification on this from my point of view. Yeah. I'm so happy you called. I'm so happy you called. Uh, can, can I, do you want to say something else or can I respond? Uh, uh, please respond. Yes. Uh, I, I totally agree with what you said. I will later explain what, what uh, my meaning of what I said and what problems I had with Black Lives Matter. But I have to tell you, when I came to the United States in 1981, and I became friends 
with my English as a second language instructor, who was pretty much my age. And he took me to his grandmother's home and then to his grandmother's summer home. And he said to me, Peter, when I was growing up 20 years ago, which means 1961, he said there was a big sign at the, at the gates of this closed community. No dogs, no blacks, no Jews. So he said, and I cannot bring any of my, not even black, but brown people, even now, that's 1981, to my, I can bring them to my grandmother's home in uh, River Edge, New Jersey, but I cannot bring them to this secluded club on the lake. So I, I have been familiar with racism. I never met black people really back in Ukraine when I was growing up. But I, I'm quite familiar with racism from the first days um, that I came, came to the United States. And personally, I only had good experiences with black people, meaning when, when I progressed from being a busboy and, and uh, being a, a carpenter, helping a carpenter into selling furniture, my boss working for what was called Frankert Furniture, that's 1982. Uh, and his name was Clarence, I still I cannot believe it. <laughs> I still remember his name was uh, African American man, for some reason, he liked me and he um, trained me by going with me, taking me from one furniture store to the other that he managed and taught me and was telling me about racism and telling me about just how to survive in a new society to me. So I had this view. And then uh, one of the co-workers, because I made very little money, who was also African-American, shared with me his lunches. But then I had other experiences when I grew up a little bit later on. In in few years, I was dating Anita. I remember her name, Anita Williams, and she was uh, a movie producer, a documentary producer, and she was a beautiful, beautiful black woman. But black people would, not white people, when we would walk together, black people would make derogatory statements about her being with a white man. So I, absolute, I am absolutely aware of what's happening, of racism, uh, conscious or unconscious that is still in, in many people, not just white people, uh, but between white people and Asians, between Asians and blacks and so on. My problem with Black Lives Matter was that, uh, particularly with thoughts about reparations, that it would paralyze black people. Um, when I'm against blame, and feeling like victims in any group. For example, Jewish people who came to the United States um, from, from Russia, Ukraine, are very, very successful. Why? Because, precisely because we were oppressed in, in our home country, in our homeland, and we had to work twice as hard, for example, for me to get into university. For somebody else, it was okay to get A's and B's. Um, but I had to have straight A's and only I came from out of military service that's already give you special treatment. So after military service plus straight A's and that's why, how I entered university. 
Uh, and it was the very few Jewish people who were entered. So I know about prejudice, and yet you become stronger. I'm grateful now to them for having lived through this prejudice because it taught me to work harder. Just like uh, Ben Carson said, he knew, his mother knew that there is a lot of prejudice. He grew up, he's a little, uh, I think, my age or older, and he grew up with a lot of prejudice. But what his mother taught is, you are the only person who can stop you. There is nothing that you cannot achieve if you work hard. And he learned to work hard. And giving people money, even though it's, you would call it reparations, first of all, people, majority of people who would get the money were never really truly oppressed the way people were oppressed 40, 50 years ago. So a lot of people would receive this money and it would paralyze them from thriving. Uh, the fact that Black Lives Matter burned houses, burned stores, it's a horrific, it's a disgrace. It is, there is no excuse for violence. Dr. King taught that good does not come out of evil. Evil comes out of evil. The reason all these wonderful things were achieved legally, free, relative freedom for, for black people, for minorities, because they did, not, they did not promote violence. It was just like Gandhi's non-violent resistance. That's what brought uh, equality in this political, at least equality in this country to black people. So uh, to, to encourage people to receive welfare, uh, receive preparations is to uh, enable them, to encourage them not to work, not to thrive. And we know what happened with black families. It's a tragedy, tragedy that was created by the government of the United States, that they started uh, from the times of L uh, Lyndon Johnson. They, they came up with these uh, programs, which in, in a way uh, humiliated black people, saying, oh, they are not capable because of uh, prejudice. They were not capable or as capable as white people uh, to get into colleges. And therefore, they need special affirmative action whenever it was instituted. <laughs> Black people are so capable, they don't need any affirmative action. They are capable to achieve whatever they, they, they want. Yes, they have to work harder. And that's why they can achieve more than other people. But the moment you say to them, oh, poor people, you were discriminated against now, it's okay for you not to work as hard. It's okay for you to get into colleges where uh, requirements are very, very strict, but because you are black or because you are whatever color, you can get into it. And then they, they're not doing well in these colleges and they feel that they're discriminated against again. So my... Uh, am, I, am I making myself <laughs> clear? Yeah, actually, Dr. Resnick, if you would just take a pause for a minute, because these were the issues that you brought up that kind of got under my skin. Okay. And I, I really would like to address them, if you don't mind, just for a minute. No, um, please. First, I, I, I want to talk about reparations, because I am a believer in reparations. And... You can say that, well, the people that uh, are who really deserve reparations are long dead. It's irrelevant. 
Um, you know, if you go to court and a relative of yours has died from being poisoned, um, you are the family and you were affected by that. Now, that relative can no longer collect on that money, but your family can because they were directly uh, affected by what happened. Now, when it comes to reparations, um, I wasn't, I, I have several really good ideas, I think, when it comes to reparations. And I'm not talking about just giving out a chunk of money to, uh, to people. That, that isn't the form that I was talking about. But I have to say, until, until we make whole people and stop telling them that these things really never happened or it happened so long ago that it's irrelevant, um, nothing is going to change for us. Because I, I think you would agree with me that if you don't acknowledge somebody's pain, then you really are, uh, then you're really causing resentment. It's a very deep-seated resentment. And, you know, what's happened is black people have been in this country against their will for 400 years. They didn't come over because they wanted to. They came over in torture. They were put in the bottom of the boat. They were bound together with shackles. They were puking on each other. They had diarrhea on each other. Uh, when, when, the, uh, when people got cholera, they just threw them off the boat so they wouldn't use the rest of them. Charles, and then when they got them, the the pain the, the the things that happened were even worse. It was it was a series of of terrible tortures for many many years. Now a lot of that is not uh, is not available to the public eye. Uh, we certainly don't teach it in our public schools, um, and you really have to look for uh, the true history of what's happened here. But it did happen, and what I'm trying to do is get a resolve here so that people are acknowledged for the pain that they have, and don't fool yourself. Don't think that because something happened to somebody's grandfather that that pain isn't shifted. I know that you're a psychiatrist, so you must know that, you know, even with a person who is beat as a child, she may grow up and, and marry a man who beats her, not because she likes it, but because she's familiar with it. So this is a, a pain that gets carried over the generations. And I really think that the only way that you can get around this is to make a a very meaningful act of saying, I acknowledge what happened to you. Now, I just want to go back for a second on welfare. I want you to know that my parents are 100 years old and 96. I told you that before. And when my mother and father were children, uh, you know about the Great Depression. Your parents probably went through it, too. But there was no welfare in this country or Medicare or Medicaid or any social program whatsoever. People were actually dying of starvation in the United States of America. And it was President Roosevelt who brought all of these progressive uh, uh, actions across, these, these, uh, these programs. Him, not Lyndon Johnson. And I want you to also know that the civil rights movement, headed by Dr. Martin Luther King, although they might have had a mantra of nonviolence, there was plenty of violence that happened to them. Dr. King, walking down the street in Chicago, had a brick thrown at his head. He was also stabbed. The churches that were blown up. How about the bridges, the bridge in Selma, where all the black people were attacked by the police? So although you might take issue with a couple of buildings, I don't think there were houses that were burned uh, during the Black Lives Matter uh, uh, campaign, uh, nothing, nothing as severe happened there. It could even be compared to what happened in the 1960s or in the 1950s. I mean, Emmett Till, uh, just a young black boy visiting his aunt, uh, you know, whistled at a woman, actually looked at a woman, and they, uh, the two grown men killed him, uh, attached a, a gigantic air conditioner system to him, threw him in the lake. I mean, it's awful things like this are very common in the South. I and know this because my father is from the South. You know, when my dad was a kid, they were still doing lynchings. And when I asked my dad, well, why didn't you do anything? 
He said, because if you did something, you were going to get lynched too. So I just am asking you to expand a little bit more on the history and understand that if I, I know about people and how they get resentful and where resentments come from and resentments, I mean, the resentments can cause so much damage in the planet. And in fact, they have caused it. And so, you know, think again before you, before you, you know, just say, well, you know, here's, here's something that was really bad that happened. And also people that burned anything, you know, I don't think that the people that burned anything were, uh, necessarily evil people. And I don't even know if those people that burned those places were members of black lives matter. I have been in all kinds of groups. There is always somebody in a group who's a shill, somebody who's not really with the group comes in there to try to make the look, the group look bad. And it's, it's, it's a pain in the neck to get rid of them. It's a pain in the neck to get out of them. I mean, even when I was at Occupy Wall Street, half the battle was trying to keep the people that were provocateurs out of the group. And they're always there. Wherever there is something going on, they're there. So before we just look at our TV and say, Oh, that's, that's what happened. And that's what's, you know, right and wrong. And I also want you to remember that when you came to this country, you came with your skin. Of course you had to work twice as hard, but how would you feel if for 400 years, all the time here, you never got a leg up. You always had to work twice as hard. And why did you have to work twice as hard? Not because you were from another country. You're born right here in the United States. People that are black are born right here in the United States. And they have to work twice or three times as hard as white people do. And they have to be twice as good as us because they're always under the microscope. I mean, I'm, I have to protect the people when I campaign, when I'm out there um, running for political office. I have to protect the people that are around me from, from, from you know, people uh, trying to uh, hurt them. Because, you know, there's, there is that much prejudice around. So i got to say that I do understand your perspective and your point of view. Mm-hmm. But what I'm asking you to do, I know you live in a city. Pull it out further. You know, God gives us this brain. And one of the things that I think is the hardest thing to do is every single day you have to crack open your head and pull the two sides apart to allow even more information in, to allow more acceptance to try to grow. And change, there has been very little change in this country, but changing ourselves is not easy. And I just wanted to offer this point of view to you because I think you're a very nice person. And I think, well, from what I can tell, I think you have a nice voice. I think that you have all good intentions, but I just wanted you to hear some of these things. And, you know, this is not about being with a successful black woman. I mean, come on down to the hood, come to see, come where I live sometime. I'll take you around. People are, one thing I know about (laughs) We'll get in touch. I will. I, Come I on over, that. Dr. Resnick, because you would be wonderful. You would be wonderful to have. I have so many nice friends, but I want to also just leave you with this last thing. You know, I don't know, but people that have suffered always seem to be so much more giving than people that have not. And, you know, I got to tell you in my neighborhood that people always show up for me, you know, mm-hmm. when I can't. And I and they don't have to. And I remember living at home where, where my parents live, you know, and, and sometimes people showed up for you, but not that much. Here, it's like, you know, people just do show up. I, I was very sick with COVID a month ago. I couldn't believe how many people, people brought my cat food up. I never asked them. People, uh, you know, helped me with the laundry. I mean, all kinds of things. Now, I'm not saying that's always, but I'm just saying it's something I noticed. 
And I don't know if it's because when people are poor, they're much more giving or just that, you know, that's, people have suffered. Many people in my neighborhood have. Too. Many, many people have suffered. Yes. It's been my experience, too. People who have less are always ex- extending my, themselves much more, way more than people who have yeah. a lot. It's as if they have to put all their emotional energy on protecting what they have. I totally agree with you. But I want to thank you very, very much for for this call. Um, I, I am proponent of dialogue, not discussion, not debates, because the debate means one person tries to change the opinion of the other person. We, we are grown people. I, you sounds like when you are an intelligent person, uh, you have an opinion. And I, I hope like you're not trying to fix me and I'm not interested in fixing you. And what you no. and I did, I shared with my idea. That's what dialogue is. I shared with my ideas a couple of weeks ago. You now shared with your ideas. I definitely will think about what you said. And you already thought about what I said. And that's what each of us will get what they are ready to get from what the other one said. And for example, I I would love to go and visit you. I would love to go what you call (laughs) in the hood. (laughs) Go on my website, gwengoodwin.com, and then you (laughs) <laughs> then you can hook up with me. <laughs> How do, what do you say, Gwen? Would you say repeat it's, it again? It's, it's, my website is gwengoodwin.com, and it's the last name is spelled. <laughs> That's very, very strange. Hello? I'm here. I'm here. Yeah. Isn't it weird that you started You started giving your, <laughs> your address, your website, and suddenly there were problems <laughs> with the line. Oh, it's yeah, not weird, Doctor Rosen. Weird things. I, I tell you something. You know, if you if you do any, the, the smallest thing. I saved the school here in East Harlem, a gorgeous school, and you can't believe all the things that happened to me while I was saving this school. You would have thought that I was bringing like you know rain and terror. Instead, I mean, saving a school for children to be educated, and yeah. so many people that people uh, they tap my phone. Uh, I, you know, when I was running for office, I got death threats. I mean, it's amazing what yeah. you know what a little bit of anything will do. It really shakes other people's business up. But I know that I'm, I'm a person that uh, the the good good boys up top watch. So that's okay. I, I Let them watch. Up in society <laughs> where you every step was was watched so i know this i know i'm used to it so how would, would you spell it again gwen goodman yes good not goodman goodwin it's very similar it's a g-o-o-d-w-i-n goodwin.com dot com okay definitely will visit you your site and i will send you an email and we'll hey, get hey dr that. resnick I'll make you some cookies, okay? Oh, great. <laughs> We're going into Christmas. Yeah, We're, I'm ready to go. I'm going into baking mode very soon. So. <laughs> don't, don't, don't tell my sister. She will kill me. She doesn't want me to eat cookies. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for calling. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, that was a very interesting conversation. I'm so grateful that Gwen called. Let's go back. We have now only nine minutes to our show. I want to tell you a little story. Uh, and that relates to the question that somebody asked, sending me an email, how to be happy. Uh, there is a story about uh, uh, an owner of a boat and his engine wouldn't start. 
and he spoke to other guys or girls who had the same kind of boats and they told him well if the boat if the engine is not working for sure it will cost you at least a thousand dollars just to to see what's what's wrong with it and he said well what can you do if you own the boat and the engine doesn't work that's what you do he so he invited an engineer and the engineer came uh, to to the to the place and and went down in the uh, engine room and the owner heard tap 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 they and then the engine started and that's it now the engine is working and the engineer said the engine is perfect a thousand dollars and the owner though he was happy that the engine was working was surprised you know it took a guy to tap the, with a hammer for uh, a minute and he said would you please write for me a bill uh, specifying what you would charge thousand dollars for and the engineer produced the bill in a minute and it was saying nine hundred uh, uh two dollars for tapping with the hammer nine hundred ninety eight for knowing where to tap so uh that's i like the story because when you're looking for something you may spend a lot of time a lot of energy uh tapping in the wrong place exploring looking for and still not know how to get what you want because you don't know where to tap so when this question came how to be happy i was thinking how many people teach uh, us how where and where to tap so we wouldn't have to go blindly and i went on the internet and i found i don't know pages and pages and pages of sites saying uh, three ways to be happy 10 math 10 steps to be happy uh, 12 steps to be happy ha steps to happiness and i kind of read five six seven of them and got pretty much an idea of what other people think about getting happy uh, but i found one book uh, that was the most interesting written by dennis prager uh, in fact the founder of uh, what is now called prager university which is visited his website is visited one billion times a year uh, and the book was, uh, is happiness is a serious problem. So I, I read the book and of course, um, thought of all that, all work that I did with people who came with, uh, to see me with the same question, how can I be happy? And of course they didn't just come with the question, but they shared with me that they experienced a lot of unhappiness, pain, disappointment, and so on. So putting together a couple of authors, uh, then the, uh, Happiness and Will, uh, there is a book I read, and I put together com uh, some ideas of the steps to uh, becoming happy. It's 2.55 now, so we'll have to talk about happiness, I hope not the next week, but the week after, because next week, my hope is that you will be calling with your night dreams. 
But it, I think it's a very important question or subject to discuss. So I, I did prepare some uh, material for you. Um, and the material is about one, what stands in the way from being happy, and then specific tools on how to work toward happiness. But I want to leave you with a couple of statements at least, and I wrote them here down, um, regarding, regarding what, how people accomplish what they want, whether it's happiness or, or anything else. Uh, how we manifest things. Like Emerson, for example, wrote, a man is what he thinks about all day long. So if you think about misery all day long, what do you think you will bring into your life? And but 3000 years ago, in Ecclesiastes, King Solomon wrote, as the man thinks in his heart, so he is. And of course, uh, five, 600 years after him, the Buddha wrote, we are what we think, all that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts, we create the world. And the teacher of my teacher of Tai Chi, and I practiced Tai Chi for many years, uh, his name is, was Qin Mang Ching, said, energy flows where attention goes. All these masters, all these teachers basically say the same thing. The content of our consciousness becomes our reality. But I want to end this uh, quote with a quote from my teacher of blessed memory, Colette. And even though those great masters spoke about the content of our consciousness uh, that possibly will bring out uh, us happiness, but how can somebody hold happiness in one's mind to, to, to attract happiness? So what Colette said was, happiness cannot be a goal. Happiness is a consequence. Indeed, uh, you cannot just say, I will have happy thoughts and things will happen for me and I will become happy. Uh, you cannot have happy thoughts if you are not unhappy. So, you become happy or miserable as a consequence of your way of dwelling, of your way of being. So, and, and next time we'll be talking about various ways of being that we can choose that may or may not bring happiness. And we'll talk about ways of being that bring unhappiness and then talk about ways of being and choices that we can make that may bring happiness. And that's all that I wanted to, I can talk to you today about. I, again, from, as for me, I always would rather have this calls and we and have these wonderful uh, dialogues that I had with uh, our callers. So I'm grateful to Ron for calling and Gwen for calling today. And I'm looking forward to having your attention next week. Uh, prepare, please, your night dreams, and we'll talk about them. And again, if you're interested in the course that I intend to teach in February for 10 weeks, uh, using your mind power for healing and health maintenance, send me an email. Thanks again. Be happy and peace to all who choose to live in peace.